We can all care abstractly about what we build being good, but there's something very visceral about it telling you at 3 a.m. that it's not good. Ops people like me were never going away, but increasingly we live on the other side of an API. Our systems and our constraints have far outstripped the metaphors and stories that we tell about them. Looking at things from an aggregated basis and in multiple dimensions is a lot more powerful of a technique with a system that is constantly changing. If you have the ability to like plunge your fist into the beating heart of the system and change it, then you can get dramatically different and better results out of the data. Hello, and welcome to OllieCast, the podcast about observability. I'm Charity Majors, co-founder of Honeycomb.io. And I'm Rachel Chalmers with Marion Ventures. OllieCast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program that helps companies building cloud infrastructure, developer tools, and APIs take their products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic or a speaker, find us on Twitter at OllieCast, O-11-Y-C-A-S-T. Have you watched software engineering teams up close and personal as they went on call, took responsibility for their work, and learned to do operations? What happened? Like, What advice would you give them? I wish, honestly, I had more experience of that than I did. It's still a struggle. So, you know, I started 25 years ago at a company that was doing audio workstation software and, and hardware development and so forth, and the distance was immense and months and months and months. And, you know, when I was at Microsoft in the late 90s, I was put for temporarily in, in charge of the release engineering process for MSN online properties. And we would have outages because developers who were used to delivering release software would go on vacation the day stuff released. Mm-hmm. And I got to carry the pager. <laughs> so oh boy. I think it's definitely getting better. And the youngest developers that I work with are the ones who just expect to take responsibility. Like yeah. we just acquired a company. Code ship with you know a really great team you know definitely born in the cloud kind of folks and they're probably the closest I've seen of that mentality. Yeah, it feels like nowadays, like you say, the younger generation that makes me feel old. Whatever, <laughs> they expect it. There's no sense that that there's supposed to be a divide. Obviously, yeah. I built this. Obviously, I run this. Yeah, exactly. So I think it is changing, but it's you know it's still tiny bits, and you still see. You see sort of DevOps layered on top of existing mentalities in larger organizations. Yeah, I feel like the DevOps revolution, I know I've said this a million times, but like the first stage was like, ops people, you must learn to write software, you know? Mm-hmm. And we all internalized that. And it was, you know, it took five, six, seven years for it to become just standard in the default. And I feel like we're about two years into the flip side of that, where it's like, okay, software engineers, like your turn, mm-hmm. build yeah. operable services and you can't do that without being exposed to it because that feedback loop has to be tight. Yeah. Well, I think I think what happened first was with Agile, I think software developers started to care about how users ended up using the software and users actually getting the value, and that was a revolution. Mm-hmm. And I think that is hand-in-hand hand with caring about it actually working and having quality. Okay. So I think there's two different continuums of that sort of left-right movement that's we happening. We can all care abstractly about what we build being good, But there's something very visceral about it telling you at 3 a.m. that it's not good. Exactly. So now would be a great time to introduce yourself. So I'm Christina Noren. I just recently joined CloudBees as Chief Product Officer. So CloudBees has mostly been known as the Enterprise Jenkins Company. We really deliver an end-to-end system for uh, software delivery life cycles in a modern, automated way. So we live and breathe what's happening 
And uh, I've been in software, as I said, about 25 years. I you know, have gone through pretty much every form factor and generation of software in that time. I spent seven years running product from stealth mode, 12 people in a room um, through IPO at Splunk. And you know, ran product for multiple other log search monitoring, log management companies. So you're a newbie, is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where to start, but yeah, mm-hmm. it's funny seeing these worlds come together. The work I love isolated. that you have experience personally being on call too. Yeah, it wasn't a long time, but I carried a Motorola pager. Oh okay. boy, two way. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Exactly. That was shit. And I slept with it. <laughs> <laughs> Those are great alarms. They would vibrate your entire pillow. Exactly. So congratulations to CloudBees on getting you. Charity and I were so excited when we saw the press release. What attracted you to them? Well, it's many, many factors. You know, it's funny because coming more from the monitoring ops side, I've honestly been a little bit afraid of going towards companies that really focus on the developer side. Like I kind of know what I, I think I know what I don't know about the development side. So there was kind of a little bit of a fear and an attraction. I think in just the last two years I spent at Interana, yeah, I saw so much of what I did impacted by what was going on in terms of the adoption of, of CI, CD, of DevOps automation, including through Jenkins. And I found how much my sort of fate as a head of product was tied to that. Mm. So I think the CloudBees folks helped me link those things together. And also realized, you know, that I was deeper in the development side than I thought I was by osmosis. So it became very interesting. And then, you know, I think just from a business standpoint, you know, effectively what we're building is an ERP for software development. You know, I got technical early on in my career because I had to build effectively my own ERP systems out of like FileMaker Pro and 4GL tools and then implement early MRP systems. But on the business side, there weren't integrated systems until much later. And now I think one of the things that is a byproduct of the automation we're seeing is you actually can manage the entire software development lifecycle the way you would manage your business. And that's coming when, you know, every industry, you know, is becoming a software business. Every mm-hmm, company is yeah. becoming a software business. So it becomes, you know, mission critical to the C-suite to see the progress of innovation through the pipeline. And it's all being triggered by the developers now. Yeah. So it seems like there's a system to be built here that's super important, and it's more than just CICD as a framework. It's something much bigger than that, and I like complex systems problems. Yeah, it seems very clear to me that the center of gravity is shifting to software engineers. They're sitting here like surrounded by APIs and SDKs and internal and external services, and they're just trying to craft something that works. Mm-hmm. And they don't really know how to do that. They were taught how to do algorithms and data structures, not how to build systems that are resilient. Like ops people like me were never going away. Yeah. Like, but increasingly we live on the other side of an API. Yeah. And if you're lucky, maybe you know us or we work with you and you can we can help you run your own services. Yeah. But I think the, the the thing that I'm trying to get at in terms of the attraction, this is something, you know, I think we're just beginning to tell the story, you know, tell a story out there is what developers are still not going to care about is that you know business management has visibility into what's happening. Sure. They care about measurement on the ground. So there is this higher level of abstraction. And you know the analogy I use is back in the day when I was running sales ops, I, you know I couldn't get a salesperson to update their sales forecast to say you know to save their life. It wasn't of interest to them. You know, with tools like Salesforce.com, there was enough value to the salesperson, and you know that was sort of you know that's the developer in the sales process. 
And then, you know, the sort of high-level management, finance and sales management and the rest of the business can get a sales forecast by means of all the work that's done. But it's other layers of abstraction that give that value. And I don't think we've gone up to that higher level, right? And so so I think getting that bird's eye view. So if I look at my role, you know, at CloudBees, I've got a distributed team, you know, of triple-digit people in engineering and product roles in 14 countries on as many projects. How do I get a bird's eye view of velocity, of capacity, of impact of releases, and of you know where things are slowing down? How do I get that you know that view? I think the individual development managers have that, but I think we're working towards a world where where I can have that, and that does matter. And that complexity is mirrored on the system side as well. As you uh, get these very large-scale organizations generating very large amounts of software, you get distributed systems which are rapidly scaling beyond any one person's ability to understand or diagnose. So we need software systems that can deal with these layered, abstracted... Absolutely. Like we need some kind of observability for understanding how to... I don't know. Something, <laughs> something there. Yeah. So I think there's many dimensions to it. And I think the monitoring of what's happening post-release is a big piece of it. You know, a sort of bird's eye view of that software factory process, you know, is, is a big piece of it. So how can CD and trunk-based development and these new emerging techniques... How can they actually improve the software and the developer experience, the developers' lives? Well, I mean, I think it's just eliminating waste and seeing immediate impact. I mean, if we can really get to a point that even for classic self-managed on-prem enterprise software, you can get all the way through to a deployment to end users having impact and you can immediately roll back releases and there's really just a very small amount of delay between a developer doing something and seeing that impact, I think you change everything. You just change the entire mentality of what everybody's workday is about. And I think it's still a holy grail and it's still, you know, ways away for most software except, you know, the absolute bleeding edge. But I think it's very possible. And I think by looking at things like post-release monitoring as part of this automated pipeline and as providing the feedback into the system to make it safe to do this. A lot of this is about focus, I think, because doing the work isn't hard, it's doing the right work that's yeah. hard. Uh, and, and that's why, like the entire, like you said, Agile, their great insight was you, you do something fast and get it out there and see how it does and then iterate on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the scarcest resource we all have is hours in our day. You mm-hmm. know, as soon as we know what the right thing is to build, most of the hard work is done. Knowing in advance is often impossible, so we have to just start by trying something, and that's where these these feedback loops come in. I think there's a cool psychological insight there as well, because developers are really motivated by shipping code that people want and use and love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what Agile can do is take away that six nine mm-hmm. month delay in actually people field testing software of which their feature is is one tiny part and instead make that something that you can do in a day and get an answer back from. Absolutely. Yeah. Christina, you were instrumental in Splunk's success. What, if any, are the limitations of log search in these distributed cloud-based environments that we're talking about? Well, I mean, I think the biggest limitation is that, you know, a lot of the needle in a haystack search of messy log data made sense when you had, you know, when sysadmins thought of themselves as responsible for these hundred servers, physical servers and the software running on them. And they knew the norms of those services. And, you know, early Splunk versions like one, two, three actually had more 
at-a-glance statistical anomaly detection visually than later versions did. Nice. And it's sort of Why? It, well, it evolved away because it became actually hard to sustain from a scale perspective. Yeah. You know, I think the limitations of that model are it's great for finding a particular error. It's fi- great for finding a surge in a particular error. It's great for, you know, sort of late binding knowledge. You know, you can do a lot of suppression, but you're still dealing at sort of the individual error fault level, and you're very much subject to what happened to be written to yes. a logging statement. Yep. And so, you know, I think structured logging changes a lot. And then the trade-offs you make for log search is that aggregation is statistically harder. And I don't think those trade-offs are necessary anymore. And looking at things from a aggregated basis and in, in multiple dimensions is a lot more powerful of a technique with a system that is constantly changing. Yeah. It's like the difference between grew up in all of computer science, you know? Mm-hmm. Yep. It always drives me crazy when I have to try and convince a software engineer that they should care about structured data. Like, mm-hmm. the ability to do read time aggregation means that you don't have to rely on having predicted what question you want to aggregate for an answer to start with. Well, I mean, I'll tell you that Facebook, it's funny, I first heard about Facebook when I was at Splunk because someone at Facebook had downloaded Splunk and there was some support escalation or something, you know. So that's how I first heard that Facebook existed around 2006 or seven or something. But, you know, Splunk never got very much adoption at Facebook for core operating use cases Mm -hmm. because of Scribe and what I call logging with intent. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the two years before CloudBees I spent at Interana that was founded by, you know, Bobby Johnson, who wrote Scribe at Facebook and ran infrastructure engineering there. And, you know, I sort of like, it was fun to finally meet him and work with him because he was sort of responsible for the beginning of the trend, you know, and, and so a Facebook-like system where you just have, you know, this massive scale and massive dynamism, you know, it became very obvious to people like him that you had to log in a structured way and then put those into structured, you know, kilometer databases like Asandra's. And I didn't totally understand the implications of that. It was just an annoyance that these Facebook people didn't care about our lovely log indexing, a, a right? Lot of the, well, indexes, again, something where you have to predict in advance that you want mm-hmm. to be able to search it sufficiently. I really hate indexes. This is also like the level of abstraction at which you're capturing data, right? And I do think that we're kind of still in the in the early days as an industry of figuring out what the good design patterns are around capturing that data. I think so, yeah. Because it's still being kind of reinvented. Every place is doing it well, and I haven't really seen anyone generalize very well. But it's like you you need to capture high cardinality. You know, people are not familiar with the term high cardinality. I'll define it as if you have a, um, a table of 100 million users. The highest cardinality is always going to be a unique ID, slightly lower, but still high cardinality would be like first name, last name. Very low cardinality would be gender, lowest of all, presumably human <laughs> species. <laughs> but like this is not a, a term that we use every day in our lives. And yet it is the most valuable data always. Like any high cardinality value that is, exists in your system will probably at some point be either alone or in conjunction with other high cardinality values, the source of an edge case that bites you. Mm-hmm. Part of why we haven't been able to generalize is that we still have this kind of old data warehouse mindset mm-hmm. of, okay, before we start creating data, what are the use cases going to be? Yeah. 
And I've always just instinctively from the first encounter with these problems, also back in Microsoft where, you know, the next project after release engineering was to build a log database. This was 1998. You know, instinctively I've always seen that this data is not inherently security data or operational data mm-hmm. or business data. It is the baseline records of what your systems are mm-hmm. doing and the more facts that you can gather and the more, the more, the more flexibility you can provide you yourself. Can tie them together with meaningful relationships. Exactly. So the bad way to think about structuring log data up front is to be restricted in thinking about what use cases you're going to have on it mm-hmm. rather than being as rich and descriptive as possible. So, you know, self-describing flexible structure is the, is the way to go and thinking about what is every fact that you possibly can capture about this event in time mm-hmm. and what is every dimension. And then, you know, getting those, I think what is good is, you know, modern data pipelines and the idea that those data pipelines or data hubs or data buses are able to then publish data to lots of different downstream systems that are optimized for different kinds of analytics. I've moved away from thinking that it's at all possible to really have, you know, one persistence layer for this yep. data against yep. which live querying is done for different use cases. Absolutely. One of the things I think I see happening is that our systems and our constraints have far outstripped the metaphors and stories that we tell about them. Mm. So you mentioned sysadmins thinking that they owned 100 servers. The things that people are responsible for and measured on have changed radically and become much more abstract and virtual and dynamic. Mm -hmm. And yet we're still struggling to connect that sense of responsibility to whatever it is that we're trying to manage. Yeah. I've been thinking a lot about the national electrical grid. Like This is the kind of system we're supposed to be building, right? That's the right mental model. It's not a lamp stack. It's not you know these graphs that we draw for ourselves. It's systems where you just have to embrace failure. It's constant, and that's okay because most of them aren't catastrophic, but they're there, you know. And people delude themselves into thinking that they're not failing just because their site's up. And you know, there's so many cockroaches living under that rock. <laughs> but like some problems, you can only see when you zoom way down to hyperlocal. The oak tree fell over on Main Street, right? Some problems you can only see when you zoom way, way out. Like, mm-hmm. you know, this bolt was manufactured in 1982 and it rusts twice as fast and that's, and, and everything in between. And just like you were saying, the same system will not encompass all of those use cases for everyone mm-hmm. and be performant and store data forever. So we do have to get comfortable with some degree of polyglottery. I think one of the challenges is that people are drawn to computer science because it's one of those STEMI fields where they think they can arrive at a concrete answer to a question. Yeah. And what we're talking about is systems that are almost becoming organic in their yes. complexity. And there's a they're lot ephemeral, of ephemeral, they're dynamic, yeah. they're in and out of existence. Well, I mean, I think if I just bring it back to, you know, to where we are today versus Splunk, a lot of a lot of what we're saying in this conversation is actually very much the conversations I was part of in 2005, 2006. I mean, serendipity with you know capital IT was my SIG file for years, and you know I think we thought a lot about embracing chaos. The fundamental difference was we, because of the dev and ops divide, and how much of the systems we were dealing with was commercial vendor products that our customers were deploying. We thought we had no control about the chaos of the data being written. 
And so we there was chaos, like messy log data is what I talk about. There was chaos in terms of what was the signal that was coming into the system. And then there was chaos, obviously, and that we talked about endlessly to launch Splunk around at that time the complexity of, you know, systems and the dependencies, you know, embracing the fact of constant failure. And we talked about the need to have all of the data to be able to see what was really happening in production versus looking at more monitoring oriented systems. But the difference here, I think, is that we don't have to have chaos in terms of what data gets reported if the developers are responsible for production and the developers have practices and recipes for what they record as observability into their systems then the chaos is just the natural chaos of the complexity of where this stuff is getting deployed and you know this and, is and race, between race conditions black box and white box right? exactly this exactly is, this it is, is that difference if you have the ability to like plunge your fist into the beating heart of the system and change it then you can get dramatically different and better results out of the data than you can if you're just like sniffing around the edges and trying to guess what's going on inside but you don't actually have commit rights Exactly. But to be able to take that leap and empower developers that way, you have to take on the possibility that they're going to break everything. Yeah. So it has to be a resilient organization, mm-hmm. one that embraces failure, one mm-hmm. that rewards experimentation, even mm-hmm. if it doesn't work out. Yeah. And that's in contrast to what you were saying before, Christina, about when you're collecting data, people wanting to know up front what the use case mm-hmm. for a particular piece of data was. They mm-hmm. wanted that kind of certainty about... Let's, they still do. Yeah. I mean, I've had these conversations like within the last few months you know, with developers who are embracing this new world but not seeing the implication for the logging side of things, right? right? So it's still hard. This logging with intent is still a cutting-edge thing, and I do think that it is a necessary prerequisite to getting the visibility into production that actually allows it to be safe to do this continuous deployment. We're using deterministic logic in a world that's rapidly becoming relativistic. Yeah. What do you think the punishment should be for developers who don't structure their logs? It's an interesting, it's an interesting question. Ideally, in this world, you know, the punishment is experiencing the consequences of their software not having the impact that it should have, right? You know, it's funny, I'm tangling with this in a new way because definitely all of our customers I'm starting to speak with are tangling with, well, do we enforce certain things in the software development process through this new tooling or do we enable it and encourage it? So I have to come on the side of the enabling and the encouraging of, um, okay, well, you know, the last week's worth of daily releases seem to have tanked our systems and we haven't been able to diagnose them and we haven't figured out where to roll it back. So let's post-mortem it, let's figure it out. And I think more and more there are teams within software development organizations that have names like developer productivity that are really providing tools and best practices. And, you know, it's like, okay, you're not bad and wrong, but based on what happened in this past experience, this is some techniques and practices that you may not have adopted. And here's some systems we have inside the organization that you could take advantage of. And if you do, you may not have a week next week like you had this week, right? I think, first of all, when you start out, you absolutely have to build a culture where you are permissive. If you want to get the best talent, if you want Mm -hmm. to empower your people, the best companies are very permissive in letting you choose the right tool for your job. But there comes an inflection point in the life of the company where that, that falls apart just spectacularly. 
And this is often a big crisis in these teams where they're just like, ah, we're losing our culture. We can't, but this won't work. And everyone just sees that they're at the end of that. And the most successful thing that I, I see companies do is they embrace at that point the idea of a golden path. This is the blessed path. You know, they, they nominate a couple of senior mm-hmm. engineers and be like, you figure out what our defaults are. These are supported yep. by the organization. If you follow this golden path, we will support you. We will, we have on call rotations. If you deviate, you may certainly do that, but you own it. You will get called. You will get woken yeah. up. You are on the hook for it. I'm seeing similar. And I think just also the point of like attracting talent. That's something that's definitely been interesting with this new perspective I have with CloudBeast customers is so many of our customers are large organizations and traditional industries that are reinventing themselves digitally and rethinking of themselves as software development organizations. And they're very upfront. You know, I was with someone who just moved from fintech into pharmatech and a sort of developer productivity role. And he's like, I don't want to control or enforce. I want to encourage. You know, I have to make this a place where, you know, developers own their own tools and own their own destinies. And I have to compete with the Facebooks and Googles and so forth for talent. It's a real competitive advantage. Yeah. Really recruiting is. for quality of service, for speed of execution, and for people just being happy. I think we all recognize that authoritarian cultures don't produce software that's able to be resilient and agile. We tend to sort of go to the other extreme and and encourage permissive organizations. But it sounds like what you're talking about, Charity, is that there's a middle path where people feel guided and supported, suffer natural consequences when things go wrong, don't get punished. But, you know, given the tools that they need to to contribute to the larger organizational goals. Cass Sunstein wrote that great book called Nudge. Yes. (laughs) It's like that. you got to make the defaults the right thing to do most of the time, as much as possible. And the more thought you put into the defaults, you know, as an engineer, I don't actually want to sit here and decide what the perfect data store is every single time I want to do a project. I want there to be something default that works most of the time that I can start with and then later decide, oh, this isn't working, maybe I need to do something else. I also believe so much that you know, the turnkey things have to be completely transparent and, and built from bit parts. And I think the word, you know, and I think yeah, so I'm you, not you even need to be able turnkey things. No, I'm just saying, but the, the default, but but the defaults have to be implemented in such a way that they can be tweaked. Yes, and that people can see how they're created, and that kind of transparency and openness in architectures is super important. And I think and we are is, seeing a generational is, shift in tools towards that model. And which this is, is what nice. great ops teams are doing these days. Mm-hmm. They function more like internal consultants, really. You know, they're the experts in all of the defaults. And like a really successful model that I've seen is, you know, an uh, engineering team has to build a new service. Okay, they build it, and as soon as it reaches a, a quality level that the ops team says yes, we will support it. You know, they get their support. Until then, they carry the pager. And I really like that model. Mm-hmm. So how is software development going to change in the next five to ten years? And how does observability and data management play a role in that? So I think that one dimension we haven't talked about so much is I think that the definition of a software developer is going to change mm-hmm. as well. So, you know, I think we're going to see a seismic shift where people who were business managers of some sort are retrained or move left into into software development. We're already seeing this, especially well, on the we front already, end side. Yeah, and I think I mean there was there was an earlier generation, you know, fifteen years ago of all these sort of you know business process editors generating code kind of thing. I think we're going to see a whole new generation of that. 
And I think all of this stuff is going to come together. So I think even the role of the software developer and product manager, much as you know, I've been an advocate for for the product manager for most of my career. I think that's going to merge up, and I think that the ways the code gets written are going to be more disparate. But the practices of okay, this is code that now is going to trigger a whole pipeline of getting innovation to customers is going is going there's, to happen. There's a difference between a developer and a software engineer. Mm-hmm. Increasingly, in order to be literate in almost every industry, you're going to need to be able to automate in some way. You're going to need to know how to write code. That's different than the discipline of software engineering. You're probably right there. I think where I'm going with this is that there's going to be a lot more different roles from which changes that uh, make their way all the way to the right to the end user come from. And I think they're all going to follow the same kind of software factory path. So I look at things like Docs's code, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, Even the documentation we're seeing, what people are writing as documentation, is following that same path. And so I just think there's going to be you know, almost anything that makes its way to the end user experience of any product or service is going to come through a software development lifecycle path. I think that a lot of the fear that people who are entering the software industry feel is because they can't actually tell if what they did worked or not. Right. Right. Uh, they, like we're missing that that part of the feedback loop where you can verify, you know? Mm-hmm. Like forever we have shipped code and just waited to get paged to see <laughs> if it works or not. And this is insane. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I understand why that's been this way, but this is certainly something that we care about a lot, is it doesn't have to be that way. You should be able to move with confidence, right? Mm-hmm. And this helps with focus, with knowing if what you're doing is the right thing to be spending your time on or not. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't actually know exactly how these plug together, but I feel like we'll build better things if we can see what we've done better. Yeah, absolutely. Well, when you come down to it, software is distilled best practices. And Mm -hmm. so all of the time you spend on your internal processes Mm -hmm. actually feeds into how literate and informed your developers and software engineers are. Mm -hmm. So developers are people codifying those processes at the sort of micro level. The software engineers, I think, bring in the systems knowledge to integrate it all at a macro level. Mm And so you damn well better have good processes or you're not going to generate good software. Yeah. All of the stuff we're talking about, about enabling people and giving them the tools they need. and Garbage uh, in, garbage out. Mm-hmm. Exactly. exactly. The other thing I want to say that's also been on my mind a lot and as I'm sort of observing you know, different individual examples is I think a lot of the enthusiasm for automation and codification of the software development and delivery process also ties into a lot of the desire to remove bias from the equation. So, you know, I've personally seen in a lot of software organizations that, like, on the ground where women and minorities don't, you know, advance as software engineers is because of entirely, you know, opinionated uh, code reviews and forums like that. So when it becomes literally, objectively, you can do whatever you want, you can get it to the user, you know, if it objectively changes the metrics in a positive way, it stays, if it objectively changes the metrics in a negative way. And I'm seeing a lot, a lot of, you know, the sort of next generation of developers, they're almost telling me that that they're passionate about this because they're tired of the nonsense of how much human intervention there is in the old process, yeah. and that being where the bias creeps in. Yeah, the monoculture. And so I think thing. it's what you said earlier, Rachel, about like people want to enter computer science because they feel like it's going to be very objective. 
This is an area where I think it is actually trending that way. There's a strange sort of you know interplay between trying to move towards having more diversity and inclusion in the software industry in general and moving towards more objective ways to measure the impact and fewer barriers to getting the impact of anyone's contribution to the marketplace and to users. I think the difference is the feedback loop. Objectivity is real objectivity when it's evidence-based, not when it's Mm -hmm. Mm opinion-based. And there's been a lot of Mm opinion-based, this is the objective truth because I say so. When you actually look at the evidence, when you observe, it often tells a very different story. Yeah. Yeah. The blossoming of data has become so large that we can no longer ignore the fact that we have to throw most of it away. <laughs> I think that the fact that we've been so focused on aggregates for so long has has hidden that from people's views, but that's throwing things away too. And even more so than the aggregation is the fact that I, I think that the events model over metrics is going to be increasingly important because, because they have so many relationships between dots, pinpoints of, of, of data. And and it's it's interesting, I feel like we as an industry, we took a detour 20 years ago down the the metrics root because Google released a bunch of white papers and we had them, so we built databases on them and we've kind of lost the muscles around analyzing events. I never left events. <laughs> well, you're special, Christina. You're very special. Events can contain metrics, but the other way is not true. Exactly. So. You can always derive the metrics from, and the exactly. aggregates from the event. I mean, the only thing, the only true. exception is true time series data where you're taking reading of a continuous this, variable. This and another... I think as people confuse time series exactly. and event data yeah. all the time, yes. and it drives me nuts. Yes. I mean, the um, question is not, are you going to throw this away? It's when are you going to throw it away and what are exactly. you going to spend to keep it? I, I find that the um, we have a lot, a much easier time talking to new software engineers who are trying to learn observability stuff than ops people who have been like up to their neck in dashboards and metrics for so long because they don't think in terms of events. They think about the system. Is the system healthy? Which is kind of irrelevant. What matters is, could your program get the resources that it needed to complete its journey? Well, I think another way, and this ties a little bit more to my sort of Interana viewpoint um, of two years, which is the events are actually the thing that represents interactions with the software. That is what the software is there to do. The software is there to serve requests to do something. And each record of it doing something is an event with all the details of what was good or bad about it doing something. So... You know, so that's you know a little bit of the mentality, and that for me dates back to what we were trying to do at MSN in 1998 with the executive dashboard based on events. And mm-hmm. our yeah. brains work in events. Our brains work in this happened, and then this happened, and this happened, and this is what the world like looked like when it happened. Yeah, it's it's much easier to to debug and understand your software. Yeah, and then you just have these days, you know, with the way services are built, the granularity of what constitutes an event. And one thing that I did start doing in sort of my mental model at Interana a couple years ago before this observability is I, I started to propose that we talk about observations separate from events. Mm-hmm. So say you have, you know, a sort of classic logging case. You've got an event that you have an event recorded at the application firewall. You have an event recorded by the server. You have an event recorded in the client logs. And they're all the same events. So starting to think about them as three observations of the same actual real-world event. Tracing is the other interesting thing mm-hmm. that's, yeah. um, that's new. It's the only other new thing that's out there. Thank you so much, Christina. It's been a joy Thanks, having Christina. you here. Thanks, it's, it's been fun. Great. Well, that's all we have time for today. 
If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic or speaker, find us on Twitter at OllieCast, O-11-Y-Cast. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com to check out the library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. Have a lovely day.